right. Well, I heard a little less booze today, so sorry again to let you down. We will conclude the rest of that tomorrow. Thank you, guys. I love you, too. I really do. So we're going to dive right into the text tonight, if that's okay with you. Tonight's message is going to be simultaneously incredibly heavy and joyous and wonderful. And that sounds like a contradiction because for most of us, we can't fathom both realities at the same time, both heaviness and great joy and great news. And so I want to just jump right in, skip a lot of the preliminaries. You kind of know me now. I'm getting to kind of know you. Let's just jump right in, and I want to pray. So to start off, like we did yesterday, I want to give you a moment to slow down because we've been moving. We've been running. Some of you haven't been sleeping. And it's hard to slow down. And oftentimes when we're busy in life, that creates a busy heart. And when your heart is busy and cluttered, it's hard to hear God's voice. It's hard to know what's going on underneath all the currents going on. So I want to take a minute for us to start off praying for our own hearts. So would you close your eyes with me? So just pray for your own heart. Say, God, help me listen. Soften my heart. Quiet my heart. Help me hear from you and you alone. Maybe there's something that's really bothering you right now. Maybe something happened with someone today in camp. You're hurting, you're angry, you're upset. Or maybe something back home is on your mind. Just give it to Jesus right now. Say, Jesus, I will trust you with that. But help me be fully present right now. Just give that to him right now. He can handle it. He's sovereign, as we've been talking about. He can carry it. Now take a moment for a minute. Let's pray for each other. Pray for those in your group sitting around you, and maybe you know situations in your youth group that are extra hard and heavy. Maybe someone has been really honest about some pain, some doubt, some anger in their heart. You just pray for them right now. Pray that all of us together would encounter God through his word. And then would you pray for me, that God would speak through me as I preach the word, and that the gospel would come through clearly and powerfully. Father, I feel, I feel the weight. I feel the weight of tonight. so hard as I know that so many kids here right now are oblivious to what I've even talking about. They're, they're still sleeping. They're still playing games. They're still caught up in all the stuff going on in their life and at camp they, they don't even know the reality that is, that is you and how good you are but also what we deserve apart from Jesus. So I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your spirit and truth would come forth and our hearts would receive it and respond rightly. Help me tell the truth and speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Help me be clear. Guard me from the different baggage and all the stuff that may get in the way, Lord. Pray every heart here would be attentive. You give us ears to hear. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word tonight. I pray against distractions. I pray against fatigue. The fatigue is real. We all feel it. Awaken us up. Spiritual caffeine, Lord. Have your way. And we rebuke the evil one and all his plans to steal and kill and destroy these students' lives, our lives. We pray you would reign and have your way. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen? Amen. Amen.
I know that's kind of weird and unorthodox for, for a speaker to start crying right at the beginning of their message. And if you are like my wife, if someone cries, they start crying. If, if they cry, she cries. But you'll see more of why I cried. Now, jumping right into the text, we left off with Jonah being vomited by the fish onto the land. And remember, this is a mercy. It's a kindness. God didn't have to rescue Jonah. God could have just let him have his sin, let him have his way. But God rescues him. And not only does he rescue him, he helps him towards the path of obedience. I think that Jonah, while he was in the belly of the fish, that God was actually transporting him hundreds and hundreds of miles towards Nineveh, and he vomits him in Assyria. And so God is showing his power and his authority over fish and bringing Jonah all the way to Nineveh. Remember, he went 1,500 miles the wrong way, west, instead of going 500 miles east. So this fish had to travel an incredible amount of distance. So Jonah is now finally in Nineveh. He's traveling there. And look at verse 1 with me in chapter 3. Would you read this out loud with me? Then the word of Yahweh... So Jonah finally gets a second chance, and I love that God is a God of second chances. And not just second chances, third chances, fourth, fifth, you know? And, and, and so, and more and more and more. I mean, if you look at this text, Jonah has been given a lot of chances, and God has been incredibly patient. And tomorrow morning when we go to chapter four, his patience will continue with Jonah. But this time, Jonah obeys. So verse three So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out. Would you shout this out with me? Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. There is actually some debate about what this word overthrown means, but I believe that overthrow is not a positive term because the reality is this same word overthrow is used if you read in Genesis about what God speaks that will happen to Sodom and Gomorrah for their incredible sin. And if you're a churchgoer, you've probably heard the term Sodom and Gomorrah. They're two names that, that for, for, for generations now symbolizes the pinnacle of an evil city. So God overthrows them fire and brimstone, and saves just a few out of that group. So that's the same word in Hebrew that is being used that Jonah is proclaiming. And I think Jonah is actually proclaiming the message God has given him. But how do we stomach such terrible words? These are damning, awful words. 40 days and the whole city will be overthrown, will be annihilated, isn't this a stereotype of the Bible, of, of the God of the Bible, this just, this angry and hateful God that all he wants to do is just kill and destroy? Or at least that's the perspective many of us have in the world, and maybe you have that perspective, that that's mainly what God is like. He's just this vengeful, always grumpy, always angry in a bad mood kind of God. But the problem is, this God of judgment is a God that all of us actually want. We all actually want a God of justice. Let me me explain. We all want justice, but we just want it for others. We can sometimes be ruthless towards others for their sins against us and their sins in life, but when it comes to our sin, our issues, we have tons of rational reasons why justifiable reasons why it's okay that we do what we do. And if you just understood my story and my family background history, you'd understand why I do these things or why I have these addictions or why I treat people the way I do, why I speak the way I do, or why I do what I do. 
And this is just a classic case of trying to remake God in our own image. You remember I talked about that yesterday, the three R's. We want to either reject God and his truth about who he is and who we are in light of him, or we do something a little even more twisted, is that we hear the truth, see the truth, and then we remake the truth to fit our desires. Or finally, what we can do is receive God for all he is. We're all tempted. I am so tempted to remake God at times. But God will not be remade. See, the the struggle most of us have is how do you grasp the different attributes of God? And what I mean by the different characteristics, the different things that are important to God of how he is. How do we work together the reality that God is just? He is a God of justice, and yet he's a God of love. He's a God that is good. God that is holy. How do we bring these realities together? But sadly, instead of wrestling biblically and seeing how they fit together, most people are too lazy and too simplistic that we just pick one or the other. God is love, and that's it. So it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I treat people. God is love, Sam. He's merciful. And it just gives you all kinds of license to live however you want, do whatever you want. On the other side of things, you can be lazy and just say, well, you know, God is just a God of judgment. He's a God who's angry all the time, hates sinners, and you just treat him that way, and maybe you do some religious duties to appease him, but your heart is far from him. There is no love for this kind of God, and you separate yourself from him, and maybe you out-moralize other people. You out-church other people, but in your heart of hearts, you feel very distant from God. You feel like he's always angry at you. But let me explain something. God's love in his justice work together. God's love actually requires God's judgment. Let me give you kind of a silly, unlikely scenario. Hopefully it's unlikely. Imagine I'm going on a walk, prayer walking throughout this camp, and I go to one of the the boys' cabins. In the back of a cabin, I see a bunch of you guys from maybe there was a rival gang youth group fight, okay? And one of the the kids gets caught and he's surrounded by a bunch of other eighth graders. It's a sixth grader. And they're just beating him up, okay? They're just ruthlessly beating him up, treating him like trash, messing with him. Imagine that boy sees me, makes eye contact with me. He's like, aren't you the pastor? And I look at him and I say, I love you, buddy. God bless you. And I walk away. And then I say to myself, boys will be boys. Imagine that. What would you say, what would you think and feel if you saw me? If you were on the side seeing this whole scene and you see this pastor walk away, what would you say? What would you think? What's wrong with you? Do you have any love in your heart, Sam? You're the biggest hypocrite of all time. You guys would say, you don't love him, Sam. I don't care if you say you love him. You don't care for that boy. You see, all of us instinctively know that love compels justice. Love compels action. And if I actually love that boy, I'm going to throw myself and protect that boy. I'm going to just start throwing the other kids out away. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to take the hits because I love this boy. That, that, that's what love would require, wouldn't it? It wouldn't require just some nice words and I sincerely, I'll pray for you, man. But a deep love that propels action and justice to protect him, to stop these kids from hurting him. So if God truly loves and he does, he must do something about the wickedness of the world. Remember, in the first verse of this book, what has come before him? The evil of Assyria, of Nineveh, has come before Yahweh. God sees the evil of the world, and he does not like it. He's not okay with it. He's not passive about it. He will do something about it. But there lies the problem. Who are the ones making the mess of the world? I am. You are. So that's the issue. 
That's a tension in the Bible. How does a holy, good, just God dwell among a sinful people whom he loves? So God, because he loves people and he loves this world, will judge people in justice. We're going to get to that at the very end of this sermon more and more. But the question is, how would this wicked city, this hardened, wicked city, that for generations have been characterized by brutality and evil, how would they respond to this message of judgment? And remember, warnings are what? Mercy. This merciful warning. God did not have to give this warning. God did not have to give them a heads up. He could have just been, bam, done. How would this wicked city respond? Would you look at verse 5? And can you say this out loud with me? This, and the people of Nineveh What? <laughs> what? This is the most unlikely revival you could ever imagine. I mean, first of all, this is like the worst sermon of all time. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention all these details. He literally, in the Hebrew, he just says five words. <laughs> hey, by the way, your whole city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. Okay, all right, have a good day. See ya. Right? That's it. No pathway towards repentance. No clarity about the heart of God and how much he loves them. Just, you're going to be destroyed, by the way. See ya. And yet, something happens in their hearts. They believe his words. They're arrested. They're awoken from their slumber. And they stop eating and drinking, and they put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is not something any of us would have in our home, but it's made out of goat's hair. It would be incredibly itchy. So imagine if anyone has ever held or, or seen a potato sack, you know, that burlap feeling. Imagine putting that on your body, right? Without underwear, right? That would not be comfortable, right? And what they're doing is they're doing something physical to represent what's on the inside. So for example, if you've ever seen someone lose a loved one, they may tear their clothes. Why? Because the grief in their heart is so great. Their heart is breaking, so then they, they do something outwardly to represent what's on the inside. You guys track it with me? And so they're full of mourning and humility. And this is not just the case for some, but the text says, from the greatest of them to the least of them, and everyone in between. Note the phrase listed. What's the first phrase that is listed? The people, what? Believed God. They believed God. This is so important. Listen, true belief is always followed by action. True belief is always followed by action. This is something that has often been lost in churches. We have been fooled and deceived in ourselves to believe that you can truly believe something and it not affect the way you live at all. But we all know that doesn't make sense. Nobody lives their life like that. I mean, let me give you a silly example. Imagine one of you told me with a great smile on your face, Sam, Pastor Sam, I got a girlfriend and I love her. And, I, and I'm like, okay, well, tell me, sixth grader. <laughs> All right, tell me. Tell me about this girl. What is she like? And he's like, um, I, I don't really know much about her. Okay, that's kind of weird. Um, what do you guys like to do together? Um, I actually really don't like spending time with her. Huh, interesting. This is, this is confusing to say the least. Because on one hand, this boy is proclaiming his love. He's got a t-shirt that says her name. <laughs> and he said that when I'm older, my mom and dad are gonna pay for me to get a tattoo of her name, right? <laughs> and yet, if you listen to this boy and you listen to this interaction, you'd be like, that boy doesn't love her. That boy don't even know her. 
Right, every single one of us here intuitively understands that true believing, true confession, true proclamation of something that's true in your heart will be followed by true actions, right? And yet, when it comes to the church and spirituality, we think that that could be divorced. I remember in high school, I would share the gospel with friends. I became a Christian when I was 15, and I would talk to people, and I remember this one girl. Her dad was a, was a, a, a... was actually the teacher of the class, and they were both big church attenders, and I remember her saying to me, her name is Emily, Emily said to me, she said, Sam, I'm all for church, and I'm all for Jesus, but that's too much, and she didn't care. She just lived for the world, and so she had this belief that she could be all for Jesus and following Jesus and yet not following Jesus, and that does not make sense in any category in our life, and it should not make sense in the church when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. There's no such thing as believing in Jesus, loving Jesus, following Jesus, and not actually loving and following Jesus. And yet somehow we believe that just because you say something sincerely or even with passion or even you say it at Hume Lake, then therefore it matters. And it does matter, but it only matters as much as your life follows it. So the first step with repentance is believing sincerely that you are wrong. These Ninevites believe the words, believing they need mercy and need to change. And if you truly believe this, you will make radical steps. To be honest, this weekend, a lot of you guys are going to make some bold pronouncements about your faith. We're going to even talk about that later tonight. Some of you will tell me how you will serve Jesus and you're going to go back and break up with this bad relationship or you're going to do this that Jesus told you. And you know, I will pray for you. I'll hope for you. I'll rejoice with you. But I do not know if it's real. I'm a pastor and I walk with a lot of people. And a lot over the years, I've seen a lot of people say really bold things. And just a few months later, they walk away from Jesus. I've seen it over and over again. It's the worst part of being a, a pastor. It's, it's seeing a potential miracle before my eyes and seeing that person throw it all away. The proof of your changed heart is an increasingly changed life. Notice I said increasingly. It's a progressive reality. It's not overnight. It's not perfect. You're still going to sin. I still sin. But there's a progression where you're more and more loving the way God loves, more and more like Jesus. More and more hate the things that God hates. So what you say here on the mountain does matter, but what matters just as much is what you do when you go back down. Now I want to switch gears for a second. I want to encourage you with something in this passage. I want you to consider another huge lesson here for all of us who struggle sharing the gospel. Anybody here struggle sometimes sharing the gospel with people? Not sure what to say, not sure if people are going to reject you, laugh at you, or you're going to be very good at it. Note this situation. If there was ever a situation where you could say that that preacher sucked, it would be this situation. He had a bad heart. He had a bad delivery. He had a bad message. It wasn't very long. Jonah was the most unqualified preacher of all time. And yet, a whole city Repent. <laughs> and so for, uh, for those of you here who struggle like me at times, and you say, I'm not a good speaker, Sam. I don't know enough of the Bible. I'm not godly enough. Listen, knowing stuff, being godly, being able to speak clearly and helpfully, that's, those are good. I, I hope you grow in those. I want to grow in those. I'm not saying don't grow in those. But what I'm saying is that the word of God is not dependent on you. The power to change lives are not dependent on how eloquent or how good you are at speaking the truth. The word of God does the work. And I need to remember this all the time. Makes me think of a passage in 1 Corinthians 3. It's on the screens, I believe. This is Paul, Apostle Paul speaking. He says, I planted the seeds in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What is important is that God makes the seed grow. In other words, when you are sharing the gospel, 
You may be watering the seed of the gospel, you may be planting the seed of the gospel, but in both cases, all change comes from God. God is the one that makes it grow. And so we must be faithful just to do our part. I'm going, I cannot save anybody tonight as much as I kind of want to. I can only proclaim and trust God to water, to plant, and to make things grow. And so you too, students, you can share the gospel at your school, in your neighborhood, your loved ones, and you can trust that God will make the growth come in his time, in his way. And don't let your circumstances, your age, limit your confidence in what God's word can do through you. It's never about you. It's about the word, doing the work. But how would the king respond now? Back to the text. Yeah, the greatest and the least are responding, but who is this king? This guy is terrible. He is an evil dictator responsible of genocide exterminating thousands of people. How would this hardened, evil dictator respond to this message? What would you think he would do? Kill Jonah. Bring that guy to me. How dare him speak those words in my court, in my house. String him up. Let's kill him slowly. That's what would normally happen. I mean, in the ancient world, if you just gave bad news to the king about something that was unrelated, they could kill you because they're just unhappy. And what does the king do here? Verse six, read this out loud with me. The word reached the king of Nineveh. The greatest king on the earth at that time with the most power, who has done unspeakable acts of evil, humbles himself. Lays in ashes. What are ashes made out of? Dead people. Just dust. Because, again, the outward is representing the inward. He's completely undone by the news. He's humbled. This mighty king is humbled. He takes off the symbols of his authority, his power, his prestige. He takes it off and replaces it with sackcloth. Itchy, dirty, smelly sackcloth because it's showing what's going on in his heart. He sits in ashes mourning over his sin and his wickedness. And then what he does is then he leads his people to do the same. Verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Listen, they're not just doing a regular fast without food. They're not even drinking water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king is so sincerely earnest, so wanting to get right with God, so remorseful for his sin that he's even trying to get the cows to repent. Okay? This is over-the-top language that can only be evidence of an over-the-top, insane work of God of his heart. Because he doesn't have a Bible, he doesn't know many things, so I think he's just like covering all his bases, you know? If any of the animals and the dogs and the puppies ever sin, you know, cover them in sackcloth too. Starve them until they repent too of their sin, right? He's just saying crazy things. And we see this throughout scripture when kings of the ancient world repent to Yahweh for a time. You see them make just insane proclamations. You see this with Nebuchadnezzar as well. And, and just because they make the proclamation doesn't mean it's everything God would want them to do. It reminds me of a passage in 2 Corinthians about godly sorrow that Paul talks about, that when there's a true repentance and a change of your heart, that there's a sorrow that leads you to just do crazy things because you just so want to, you so want to clear your name. You so want to do right that you go over the top. And listen, the people that I see who fall right back into old patterns when they get down from the hill are the people who don't go over the top. What they do is they try to do the bare minimum. 
They go back home and they try to come up with a game plan to follow Jesus. And every single thing that comes to mind that they, they may think of with their youth pastors or their leaders or their friends, uh, they, they always just do the bare minimum or a little less. Hey, hey, you need to get out of that toxic relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but let me just keep their number and talk to them every day. But we won't date anymore, right? Uh, I don't think that's going to work. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm sincere. I, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm not going to be in this toxic relationship. I'm not going to do those things I was doing anymore. But, but, but let me just get, you know. Or, 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 or maybe you're, you're, you're addicted to pornography and, and you keep going back to it. Hey, quiet. This is reality. This is reality. I first saw pornography when I was in third grade. Okay? And, and I'm 33. So that was a longer time ago. And so I, I'm not blind to know that the fact that not only the evil one is constantly trying to infiltrate and mess with you and wreck you through your phones and through your computer. You go back home, you say, man, I need to walk in purity, whether you're a girl or a guy. And yet you're not willing to put any kind of boundaries with your phones, boundaries with your computer. On and on and I can go. I've done this over and over with people. They repent, they say, I want to follow Jesus, and I try to help them come up with a game plan to set them up to succeed, and they just pick the bare minimum. And you know what happens? They fall right back into their old patterns. They fall right back. And you see the king of Nineveh is just going over the top, going crazy to get right with God. Now, when we look at this passage, back to verse 7 and 8 in Jonah chapter 3, we kind of see a clear picture of what repentance is. There's a, more to repentance, but there's a lot here. What do they do? They first, they call out mightily to God. They call out to him. And they call everyone to turn away from their evil ways. Do you remember the themes that we've been talking about in chapter 1 and 2? Jonah did what from God? He turned away from God. He fleed from his face. He ran from God. And so the king of Nineveh is calling all of his people to turn back turn back from their sins and turn towards God. And notice he also says this, turn from violence, the violence of their hands. He's very specific. This is another important reality of repentance. When we turn to God, we're like, we're not just saying, God, sorry for my sins. We're saying, God, I'm sorry how I blank. God, I'm sorry how I'm always doing this to you. Be specific. It's only when you're specific. That's like when, when, when we um, say sorry to people. You know, have you guys ever seen this? Your, your mom's like, say sorry to your brother. And you're like, sorry, right? Everyone like, and, and, and so for my wife and I as parents, we're always trying to challenge our kids. Be specific. Be specific. What do you, I'm sorry for being rude to you and not kind. Please forgive me. You see how that's specific? I'm, I'm sorry, right? Another step for repentance is being specific. They were a violent people. Not only violent towards others, but the text suggests they were extremely violent to each other within the city. The, the likely, the rich and the poor, they, they sinned against each other greatly through violence. But here's the crazy thing. We see that in a hundred years, God will judge Nineveh. God does destroy Nineveh, and they're taken over by the Babylonians for their wickedness. But for that generation, for some years, there was mercy and life and transformation in that city. What does that teach us? Well, that you never stop repenting. You don't do it once and you're good for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, Sam, I, I repented when I was six. I prayed with my mama at my bed table because I was scared of hell. I said sorry to Jesus. I repented. I'm good. I got my fire insurance. No hell for me. Thank you very much. No. The Christian life is Continual repentance, continual turning. Do you know why? Because our hearts are continually prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, if you know the song. So you don't turn once. You, make, you may make a proclamation once, but every day your heart is turning back to Jesus. Every time our hearts turn away from Jesus. But this is not a killjoy. This is not the end of your happiness. 
If you heard what I just said, you're like, Sam, I can't do that for the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? That sounds awful. No, this is the beginning of life. You never stop getting off your throne and resisting the allure of your own throne. And simultaneously, the more you say no to your flesh, no to your sin, and return to Jesus, Jesus takes you deeper into his heart, deeper into his joys, deeper into what it really means to be human, deeper into his delight. It's not the end of your joy, but the beginning of true joy. The more you repent and the more you turn, the more you experience what you were made for. Because God made you for himself. And when you're living outside of your purpose, you're not living in true joy. You may have temporary moments of happiness, but you are absolutely not living in the zone of true joy. And the more you say yes, the closer you get, the closer you enjoy the greatest pleasures that God made you for. Now look at verse 9 with me. The king ends his proclamation with this statement. Would you read this out loud? And, and guys, could you, could you say it loud? I know, I know it's warm in here. I know that it's been a long day. Would you say it out loud? This will help you. Who knows? Notice he doesn't say, well, first let me say this. He says that God has fierce anger. Is he right? Yes, he's right. That's right. God is angry, and he should be. He should be angry with how wicked they are, right? God would not be a good God if he was not angry at their sin and their evil and their wickedness. But also, notice the king's heart and his posture. He doesn't expect forgiveness or demand it. Do you see that? Maybe God will forgive us. Maybe he will relent. Maybe we won't perish. See, for mercy to be truly mercy, it cannot be required or demanded. Right? Give me mercy. No. What? You must give me mercy. That's not mercy, bro. That's called justice. Getting what you deserve is called justice. Not getting what you deserve is called what? Mercy. The king knows he needs mercy from Yahweh. The Assyrians don't want justice. Trust me, justice, justice would mean all of them absolutely obliterated. They want mercy, and they know they cannot demand it from God. They're not in a position of power to negotiate and demand that from God. They're at his mercy. Listen, this might sound pretty crazy, but God does not have to forgive anybody here. God does not have to love anyone here. He doesn't have to, but he does. Before we get how God responds to the Syrians' repentance, let me share with you what they're like. This is really important. You remember in the first chapter I told you that I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the Syrians? Let me tell you about the Assyrians, the backyard gnomes. The Assyrians, if you went into their palace, they would have on their walls all of these images of their courageous, in quotes, acts in battle and what they do to their enemies. So that if you were visiting from another country or a representative of another country, an ambassador, and you walked into those halls, you would see what would happen to you if you cross the Assyrians. Do you know what would be on those walls? They would do things like this. They would take over your city and they would cut off your hand, your arm, and then while you are bleeding out and dying, they would shake that dead hand, mocking you. This is rated R where I'm going. I'm not gonna go to the worst stuff because that wouldn't be appropriate for this audience. They would take their enemies, stretch them out, and skin them alive, remove their skin, and hang it on the walls. This is what they would do. They would capture a people, and what they would do is they would behead some of the people, okay, and then find their relatives who are still alive, and have and force those relatives to carry 
their fallen loved one's heads on a stake in a parade. Do you hear what I just said? They would cut off the head of one of your brothers or sisters and then force you to carry that head in a parade before their people. This is the kind of people we're talking about. This is kind of wickedness we're talking about of the Syrians. You didn't know it was that bad, did you? It's worse. It's worse. But that's all I'm going to share for you tonight. How do you feel towards those people? Yeah? Anyone feel sick hearing that? Anyone feel angry? Anybody feel mercy towards them? Anybody want to be their friends? So here's a question. How does God feel towards these people? How does God respond to these wicked, barbaric people? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What? What? God relented? God had mercy on them? They didn't spend years or months earning his forgiveness. They didn't pay back for all the wrongs they did to all the cities and the families they destroyed. How can it be that easy? How can God do that? Doesn't God know how evil they are? More than we know. How can God be that gracious? This is the God of the Bible. Not a vindictive God, but a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, eager to forgive, eager to extend mercy. He's a God that when even the most wicked, cruel, despicable person, when they turn their face from him and stop fleeing, he's like, yes! His heart is going out towards them. He's eager to extend mercy. This is the God of the Bible. And as Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish in chapter two, salvation belongs to Yahweh. He will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy on and compassion on whom he wants to have compassion on. But this creates a significant problem. I wonder if you're noticing the problem. How can God be just to forgive them? How can God justly withhold his wrath upon this wicked, evil people for all that they did? Consider, consider you lived in a neighboring city and your family was slaughtered. You carried your loved one's head on a stake and you hear through the news, you hear a proclamation that the entire city of Nineveh was spared from God's wrath and judgment. How would you feel about that? Angry, Angry right? Who is this God? Who is this Yahweh? Who is this God of Israel extending mercy to my enemies? Doesn't he know what he did to my family? Doesn't he know what they're like? You see the problem that is created with God's mercy? Have you ever considered that God's mercy is actually a problem if you understand justice? So how is God just and good in the midst of this? Before I explain that, let me talk about us for a second. Let me talk about us. I want you to imagine with me a courtroom. And if it helps, close your eyes if you're easily distracted. Remember, I told you guys, maybe I told you guys that in the seminar, I struggle with ADHD. I know what it's like to be distracted by every single cough, every single squirrel, right? I, I get that. So if you need to close your eyes for a second, do that if, if that helps you imagine this reality. Imagine this courtroom scene. You're standing in front of the judge and all that you've ever done, all that you've ever thought, all the times you've sinned, 
are proclaimed in front of the whole courtroom. The evidence is read. It's conclusive. It's thorough. Even the things you thought you hid, even the things that you thought no one knew, everything is spelled out. You are guilty for your treason against the high king of the universe. Your idolatry is exposed. The things you prioritized over God, your things, your hobbies, your popularity, all those things that you chose over God are paraded before you like a movie. And the reality, all of us have sinned like that. All of us have fought to be like God. All of us have thought that we, we know better than God at times. The evidence is perfect. God knows it all, and we deserve to be punished. And if God is just, and he is, he must judge you. He must judge the Ninevites. And if he doesn't, he's not just. He's not good. We have to be punished. Justice requires it. The law demands it. But not just killed for our sin, but even more, because our sin is against the high king of the universe. Our treason deserves more than death, but never-ending separation from God, never-ending punishment. The sentence is read, and you are standing there processing all the news, processing the reality that you will have eternal separation from God and never-ending torment. Your sins, your conscience, everything is condemning you. You know you are guilty. There's no way out. But then, before the gavel is slammed by the judge, the courtroom doors in the back burst open, and Jesus, the pure, spotless, innocent lover of your soul, bursts open the doors and runs to the Father, who's the judge. He speaks with the judge, and the judge, to your great surprise, orders the bailiffs to release you, to take off your shackles. And then to your stunned amazement, you watch them take the shackles off of you and put them on Jesus. And then to, and then to your amazement, you see them drag Jesus to a stone and they start whipping him. They strip him, and they start torturing him. And then after they unleash their anger and all their brutality upon Jesus' back and body, they take him out, and you follow him up onto a hill as he carries a heavy beam on his shoulders. And they lay him onto this heavy beam, and they take nails, and they pound the nails through his hands and feet. And then they raise him up in the air. And then he makes eye contact with you and says, I love you. See, on the cross, Jesus is treated like all he ever did is sin. On the cross, Jesus is treated like he's the king of Assyria, like he did those parades, like he skinned those people. Jesus is treated like he did everything you and I have ever done wrong, even though all he ever did is do right and love people. Who is like this God? Who dies for enemies like this? As the scripture says, while we were still sinners, yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And who does Jesus save us from? He saves us from God. Jesus took on the the punishment on the cross for us and he absorbs the full justice of God to be satisfied. It's as if you're supposed to get on the cross and instead Jesus pushes you out of the way, gets on it, and he covers you and absorbs all the punishment, all the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. And so on the cross, the full cup of God's wrath and judgment, justice is drunk to the very bottom of the cup, dry. So on the cross, love and justice meet. Justice and the law is satisfied because someone has to die for our sin. Someone has to pay the penalty of our sin. And Jesus does. Every sin. 
So this is how God is both loving and just. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Listen, no one here has to be punished for their sins and be separated from God in hell forever because Jesus already made it possible, because Jesus already died for your sins. Won't you take his sacrifice for you? He did this so you could have peace with God. Listen, if you're not trusting Jesus and fully surrender to him, you are not safe from judgment. God's justice will be satisfied either on his son who willingly died for you. Jesus did not do this against his will. He did it because he loves you. Either Jesus pays for it or you and I have to pay for it. But then there, there lies the question, how can you and I be safe from judgment? How can you and I have peace with God? Well, I want you to remember what the king of Assyria said in verse 9. He doesn't know. He says this, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They had no idea if God would have mercy on them or not. But for us, we can know. In the New Testament, Paul writes there's a promise. Look at Romans 10.9. Would you say this out loud if you're able? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise from God that you can take his word to the bank. You can cash it. That's a promise for you. You do not have to be like the king of Assyria, uncertain of your salvation, uncertain if God is merciful, uncertain if God will forgive you. He says that he will right here. Not only will he save you from the wrath of God and forgive you of every single sin, every sin, every single thing, even the thing that you think that could never be forgiven, he will forgive that too. And then he will go further. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit, give you a new heart, new desires that will progressively change you to be more like Jesus. And then when you die, you will reign with him forever. And when Jesus comes back, we will all reign with him, not just as forgiven enemies, but now sons and daughters. See, he takes enemies and he doesn't just forgive them. He says, I want you to be part of my family. It's one thing to forgive an enemy. It's another thing to send then, then say, I'm going to adopt you into my family. That's the gospel. That's the greatest news that you are treated like Jesus lived and Jesus on the cross treated like you and I lived. So what we're going to do in a few minutes is I'm going to invite many of you here to stand and confess with your mouth, cry out at the top of your lungs that Jesus is Lord in front of everybody here. This is for two kinds of people in this room. The first kind of person is maybe you've never made a commitment to Jesus. You've never truly repented and turned and asked God for forgiveness and mercy and that Jesus is Lord. You didn't grow up in church or maybe you grew up in church and you just, it hasn't been your time. That's the first category. And the second category is a little tricky. Maybe you've grown up in church, but you're realizing throughout this camp that you're not real, that you actually don't really believe this stuff and your heart is now believing. You're realizing that you've been playing games with God You've, drunk, you've, you've gone through the hoops and maybe you're really good at going through the hoops. Maybe you know your Bible. Maybe you go to church. Maybe you do all the right things on the outside, but no, but you know that on the inside, you're still the one sitting on the throne of your heart. You're still the Lord of your life. God is just a puppet, a genie to serve you. Life is still about you and you're living and you've created that bargain with God that I talked about the other day. This transaction that you do enough good things, you in turn deserve good things from God. That's the second category. And this is, let me be clear, this is not for you because you've sinned. All of us still sin and struggle. But what I'm talking about is you're realizing that you have a pattern of being the Lord of your life. I know some of you have sensitive consciences and you feel like you have to get saved every single time you go to camp. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who you know that in the day-to-day, -day, you are living for yourself even though you may be a good church kid. That's who I'm talking about. You were like me. Remember, I grew up in church. I played the game really well, but I wasn't real. And when I was 15, that's when I surrendered it all. I saw that Jesus is a greater treasure, more worthy than all the other idols I was giving my heart to. 
But before you make such a statement and a step, I want to give you some time to count that cost. John is going to come out and play a little instrumental music. I know you guys are going to be tempted to stare at him while he gets ready, but stick with me just for a few more minutes if you can. What we are talking about is getting off the throne of your heart and staying off that throne. And for the rest of your life, committed to continue to stay off that throne. And every time you find yourself sneaking right back on that throne, you get right back off in Jesus' name, by his grace. Not perfectly, but truly and consistently. This means for everything. Everything is now surrendered to Jesus. That means your careers, your life, your future, everything. I want to share an important scripture, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, this is Jesus speaking, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Notice he says that word daily. Not once, not at Hume, but daily. And that means that there will be times where Jesus regularly will call you, daily, in fact, call you to give up things or do things for him that will feel like you are dying because it's so hard. Because it's your flesh still clinging on to your idols and clinging on to your independence. And the more you say yes and the more you crucify that flesh and give it to Jesus, the more power of the Holy Spirit you have, the more joy you have, the more victory you have, the more grace you have in your life. It's a progressive reality. And listen, he may call you to be a missionary one day and abandon your future dreams of playing in that sports or doing, going to that city or doing that thing. He may call you to be single for the rest of your life. God does that sometimes. He may call you to lose your popularity or never get the popularity you so long for. He may call you to forgive someone who's hurt you in unspeakable, terrible, abusive ways. You may lose the respect and blessing even of your family. He will definitely ask you to live counterculturally against our, against our materialistic American dream world. I don't know all that he'll ask you, but what I do know is that his plans are better than yours. And what he calls you to is life. Remember, Jonah is fighting with God, with his vision of what the good life is, what good just is, and he disagrees. And you and I struggle with the same thing. We think that God doesn't know as good as us. God doesn't know what will make us happy. And you remember what the serpent does in Genesis chapter one through three? He whispers, no, God doesn't really love you. If he really loves you, he'll let you have that fruit. He doesn't really know what's best for you. But listen, the way of the cross is the way to life. The way of repentance is the way into greater life. But listen, I'm going to have you stand. Not yet. But if you're too afraid of what people think, you're not ready. If you're more afraid of what your friends will think, you're not ready. But let me tell you something. On that final day, your boys won't be there when you face the God of justice. When you face him, you will see him. You will not be with your family. You will not be with your friends. You will be there as an individual. And if you proclaim Jesus as Lord now, then he will own you then. If you are ashamed of him now, he will be ashamed of you then. But that does not have to be your fate. He is extending mercy and forgiveness and invitation for you. So John's going to play and we're going to have silence, and I mean it. If you don't want this, if this is not for you, do not tear, bring someone else down and distract them by talking to them. Have some care for them. And as you think about, as he plays, count the cost. Are you willing to let go and let Jesus be the Lord? Are you willing to let go of your sin, your shame? Are you willing to receive mercy and forgiveness and new life in him? It will be hard, I promise you. But the best things in life are hard, and this is the best thing ever. So count the cost. What will that require of you? What will you have to let go when you come down from there? What, what do you need to let go right now? So I ask everyone to close your eyes if you can. Count the cost. So with every eye open. Because following Jesus is definitely a private, personal matter, but it's definitely 
a public matter. With every eye looking, if you want the mercy of Jesus, if you're done running from him, you're done turning your face from him and fleeing from him, and you want his forgiveness, and you want him to take control of your life and no longer fight to be your God, fight to, for your own glory and your own purpose and your own, you want to lay it down to a better king. Then on the count of three, I want you to stand up and shout the top of your lungs, Jesus is Lord. All right? One, two, three. Stay, stay standing if that's you. If that's you, stay standing. If you just did that, Romans 10, 9 said, if you said that with your hearts, believe that Jesus died for you, was raised for you, then you are forgiven. You are saved. You are saved from the punishment you and I deserve, and you have God's favor. His face is turned towards you, and it's favor, 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 love, love, love. And he's adopting you as his children. He's filling you with his spirit, transforming your heart, healing your wounds, cleansing you of your shame. If that's you, I welcome you into the kingdom. I welcome you as my new brothers and sisters in Christ. You're now my family. And so for the rest of your life, continue to repent. Continue to make Jesus Lord. Continue to get off that throne when you fall, find yourself back on. And continue to experience the great mercy and joy and love and grace of Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We don't deserve mercy, but you love to give it. That's what you're like. That's the kind of God you are. You love giving mercy. No one's like you. Who dies for sinners? Who dies for enemies? Who dies for people like the Syrians and like us? Thank you, Jesus, for doing your work. I pray that you'd seal these realities in our hearts, transform our hearts to be forever yours. And even though we're going to stumble in the days to come, even though, even though there's days where we get right back on that throne, Lord, I pray that you keep us, fill us with your spirit. Help every single student here who's yours, know how much you love them. Seal them in your love. Seal them in their identity in you. Thank you, Father, we love you. And now, for the rest of us here, let's stand and sing in response that his mercy is more. Let's sing with all of our hearts.